Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. On today's show, I'm speaking with Ted Shilowitz, futurist in residence at Paramount Pictures. Ted works with studio leadership and the tech teams at Paramount, Viacom, CBS, exploring new and emerging technologies like XR, VR, MR, AR, and volumetric capture. Ted lives in 2030. So he will guide us through how we're going to consume and create content tomorrow and why future thinking is imperative for today's large companies. Let's get after it. Ted, welcome to the show. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you again, even if it's through a little virtual TV layer. Um, it's very pleasant to talk to you. It's great. I feel the same way. And it, it is, we're living in this 2D world, uh, but I have a feeling you're going to change our perspective on that in a second. <laughs> I'll do um, I almost apologize for asking you this question, but I want to understand what a futurist in residence does. Because I know you're doing that now at Paramount. And before that, you had a similar position at 21st Century Fox. So it's a fairly popular question. I get it asked a lot. Like, what is a futurist? How do you get to be a futurist? What kind of job is being a futurist? And it tends to have different answers depending on the audience and depending on the day or depending on the moment. But overall, what my perception and my practice of futurism is is I'm an explorer. I tend to look at things with a very wide, very optimistic, very human-forward approach to the intersection of technology and creativity and study the tool sets, the ability for various people in various parts of their careers to adopt and use them, and then for consumers to adopt platforms and adopt the entertainment that comes from those platforms. So you're right about your touch point. You mentioned I tend to look pretty far out in the future. So there are a lot of people that work in a lot of movie studios, broadcast entities that will look a year, 18 months out and start to make some predictive analysis on what they think they need to do to react to that. I tend to be four or five moves further along than that. So I'm playing chess kind of four moves ahead. Right. And I'm thinking at least 10 years into the future all the time. So now that we're in 2020, my sort of mark and where I'm kind of studying and looking and trying to build my understanding bubble of is what does 2030 look like and what does it feel like? And what's really interesting and probably overtly aware to a lot of people now is that the pandemic has set a accelerant on the future for a lot of people. All of the things that I've done for years in preparing for the day when we're going to be moving to a more and more virtualized everything is now becoming reality probably five to seven years faster than it would have on its own volition. So because we've been asked to separate and be remote, by our nature, we rely on technology to be our barrier to help us accomplish the goals that we can't accomplish in person to remove that barrier. So there's so much that so many more people are doing 
as it relates to remote communication, remote socialization, the concept of video discussion and video work, right, has become so commonplace so fast that people that would do three to five conference calls a day and three to five in-person meetings a day are now doing almost everything in some sort of video chat client on a computer. I've been doing that for 20 years, right, in in some fashion. Um, In addition to my in-person travel around the globe and do presentations and stuff, I would do a a fair amount of virtual presentations because just sometimes you're double booked, you can't get cross-planet or it just doesn't warrant the cost and energy of going to China or going to the Emirates or going someplace where you're talking about a 20-hour-plus plane flight and all the sort of dynamics of that. So I was like, well, we could just do this on video. And I actually, you know, there's been big conferences on IBC years ago where I would have shown up just like we're doing now on a video chat on a giant movie screen in front of an audience of a couple thousand people and, you know, say hi to them. And I could see them through a camera and see the audience and we could ask questions. And, you know, as long as we had really fast and good and stable internet, it worked almost as good as if you were there. But you have to have really good communication skills. And you have to understand the cadence of remote communication, which is a little different than in-person communication. And you have to understand how to speak you know, really succinctly and understand visual cues and be able to give things in a remote environment that are different than in-person communication. There are definitely people that are better at it than others. I tend to, I would say, on the spectrum of good to bad, I tend to be more on the good side of it than the bad side. <laughs> yeah, I would say that. One thing that's really interesting is I read an article that is basically around the adoption of video for phone calls and chat, right? The Zoom phenomenon that's here, that it advanced five years in about five days. Totally. Yeah. And now, my question for you you know, you're you're 10 years out, four chess moves ahead. Um, When you're looking at this stuff, I think a lot of people would like to be a couple chess moves ahead right now. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing, what you're thinking about? Because, you know, beforehand we were chatting a little bit and you know, chaos often makes people retrench into what they're used to and what they're comfortable with and sort of also opens the gate for true entrepreneurs to say, hey, there's opportunity here. There's seismic changes happening. So I'd love to just get your high-level thoughts on that. Yeah, like we were discussing before we started recording that there are definitely people that are just opportunistic by nature. And when difficult things happen, you see them as opportunities. You don't see them as restrictors, right? You don't see them as problems. You see them as, okay, so this is now going on. What are the things that I can do to help myself and help others in my community and in the world by using some of the skills that I built up, my muscles that I built up about doing this, right? So what's interesting about my work, my job at the studio and then the larger Viacom CBS is I've sort of had this self-awareness that people at the exec level at the studio and at the larger company liked having me around. They liked my opinion about stuff. They liked the fact that I was fairly open and would sort of say what I thought without restriction. In fact, going back to my Fox days, one of the funniest sort of moments I'd ever had was going into one of our senior staff meetings and speaking my mind about a topic. And then one of the presidents of divisions came over to me after and was like, I don't know if you're aware of this or if you like watch this go down, but Everybody here, because of what we do and like our earning power and how we do it, 
we're always running a little bit scared. Like we're always kind of, you know, sort of protective of our turf and we don't want to take too many risks. Like we don't want to show that we believe something that's a little bit against the status quo or a little radical. So we're sort of doing our best not to get fired every week. It seems like your job or your sort of MO is you are trying your absolute hardest to get fired every week. The stuff that comes out of your mouth. We all look at you and go, wow, I can't believe you just said that. But then a month later, a year later, it all kind of comes to fruition. They're like, oh, I guess he was right. But I thought it was a, it was a pretty good compliment because like for me, I've just never been scared of thinking and saying what I thought was what was going to happen or where the truth really is. And I think over the past years of doing this job at 20th Century Fox and now at, uh, at Paramount and Viacom, they kind of enjoy my, my candor and, and having me around. But I've often sort of thought I was like the court jester and all this. Like they just like <laughs> having me around because it's interesting to have another perspective on it. But over the last six months, I think it's been really interesting because there's been sort of a deep realization of now everybody finally knows what the hell I do. Like they're all yes, yeah. completely aware of how these things happen and how technology moves people into certain choices and certain things that was always one step removed from the here and now and their like day-to-day job. Now it is their day-to-day job to figure this out. So I'm getting relied on quite a bit more to sort of be on these task forces and figure things out around safety protocols and new technology we use for production and post-production and looking at new forms of visualization and just everything new, right? So the opportunity that this has brought, not to sort of, you know, minimize the terrible impact, the human impact that is going around the planet, which is just impossible to even wrap your head around the amount of loss of life and just the challenges that people are facing economically and socially and and psychologically, you cannot minimize it, right? And I think part of what's going on with our society and certain parts of our political structure is they're doing their best to minimize it. And it's very frustrating for a lot of people. So I think we're going to see a lot of radical dynamic change because of that, at least. But just in general, the idea of being able to take a stab at new things, which was always one step removed from the rest of the world because everybody's got better things to do. Now, this is the better thing they have to do. So I've been sort of thrust into like the heat of battle. You know, it's funny is I was interviewed for a different podcast uh, recently and, and they asked me, you know, what do you do now that the world has been thrust into chaos? And, and my first thought was like, for an entrepreneur or somebody starting up or, or in the innovation world, like, the world's always been in chaos. Like, yeah, this is a daily event for us. We yeah, don't we're, we're in it. Like this is, we're ready. Like we would, it's like the, the Olympics are here. We've been training for this. Um, Other than really moving a lot of my equipment, my VR and mixed reality equipment and all of my lab equipment, some of the secret stuff that we're working on into my home environment, that's kind of the only change. Like I don't really do anything any different than I did before. I'm just doing it from a different place. I just don't drive to the studio to do it. And truthfully, I was kind of half and half anyway, because when you rely so heavily on technology, the wonder of what we've built over the last 40 years with technology is we've built time and space machines. We can do things from other places than an office environment or a quote unquote professional environment, right? It's not a problem as long as you built up the tool set and the muscle to do it. And I've been doing it for such a long time that I felt almost no real impact from this other than because I tend to travel a lot physically to give presentations in large stages and stuff, all that went into video mode. So I've really been only on an airplane once to take my daughter to college. That's it right. in the last six months, which is very odd for me. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same boat. 
So let me ask you this, and, and maybe this is changing or will evolve, but how do you persuade executives at these huge studios and companies to invest in your role even or into specific futuristic technologies that neither of which may have like an immediate ROI that they can point to? I think a lot of it is using examples that, again, tend to be very, very like in your face if you just take the time to look at them to understand the power and the economics of change and how it all works, right? So in, like, in one of my presentations, I have this area where I talk about, let's look at the largest valuation companies on the planet today and what do they all have in common? They essentially all have figured out a way to virtualize goods and services in some fashion. They use an IT slash compute slash data structure and layer to do things we used to do in the physical analog world, and they've made it into an IT scalable business. So if you look at literally the world's largest companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Tencent, Huawei, et cetera, et cetera, Alibaba, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are the things they all have in common? They have a very strong reliance on a data pipe business and taking things that we used to do with some degree of physicality, like opening up a paper map. Now we just do it on some sort of little TV screen, which we call a smartphone. Shopping, we used to do in person. Now we do it as some sort of metaphor of a digital television shopping thing, right? That's Amazon and everything associated with it, right? It's like every company that has figured out that the world is moving to IT as a business, regardless of your business, are the ones that have capitalized mightily pre-COVID and are capitalizing extraordinarily mightily post-COVID. Right? Apple just did a stock split. They're above a $2 trillion valuation based on the day. Right? And it's interesting because there are very few solid companies that people want to invest in that have enough of a strength and a belief structure in the future that this feels like the strong bet, that this is going to continue to go up in, in sort of meteoric rise, right? If you look at Tesla as a company, they've essentially turned a car company into an IT company. Right. You're driving around in a big electric computer, right? That's what I drive every day. And by the way, I don't have to drive it myself if I don't want to. The computer is so advanced that it drives itself, right? And I do that on a pretty regular basis. But Tesla is not a car company. They're an IT company that wraps themselves around this is the output. They make a vehicle that is an IT platform. And therefore, their stock is going through a meteoric rise past the point of all logic when you talk to anybody in the investment world, right. except for the fact that you're betting on the future. You're betting on the fact that this strategy is more right than others, right? The platform du jour of video chat now is Zoom, right? Yeah. And it's a ridiculous statistic that Zoom, as a company, has a larger valuation than all of the seven largest airlines on the planet combined. A video chat company with not really any real strong sense of like extraordinary earnings. I mean, they're making a little bit of money, but people are betting on something when there's like 12 other versions of Zoom that work just as well. Right. You know, Skype and Teams and Google Hangouts and FaceTime on the Mac platform and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's just Zoom found the moment, right? And, and people like it and use it. But that doesn't mean it's going to have real bones of a successful company over, over a long term. But just the psychology of that. And then you could apply this to things like, you know, in our business, 
I spend a lot of time looking at interactive entertainment, right? Because I believe it is the next horizon and the next couple of horizons of traditional entertainment. It's been segmented, but still massively economically powerful, right? And the people in the traditional media world are aware of their power. They just don't quite know how to get in on the action. They don't quite know how to be authentic in that world. When they've tried, they've missed, and they typically leave it alone. What I'm doing is looking a lot at where the future of entertainment lies as the blending of what strengths a large passive narrative company like ours can bring to the table and bringing new blood and new energy of interactive entertainment and putting them in a new chemistry together. And as an entire generation and multiple generations start to build their comfort with virtualization, which is happening right now, we're we're in the midst of doing it right now, the economic and creative power of that is going to be unlocked. It's going to be exponentially larger than it is today. So the opportunities for this to exist are for the bold and for the people willing to throw their hat in the ring and start experimenting and exploring and trying stuff, which goes all the way back to your first question, what does a futurist do? In my mind, a futurist is an explorer. You've got to look and see and feel and meet and connect and test as much stuff as you possibly can to get a sense of where the world might be headed. And then you make your predictions and you sort of lay it out there and you say, this is happening. And these are all the clues that I have to tell you that it's happening. And now people that are a billion times higher on the pay grade than me will actually make those decisions and say, okay, we believe you. We're going to try it. We're going to spend some money and we're going to figure some fun stuff out. Quick insight. I love Ted's line, the blending of strength, because that is the opportunity for startups and large companies when they partner together to complement each other and mutually accelerate growth. With that comes risk for both, of course, but innovation is indeed for the bold. So I think one thing that you touched on there that is super interesting and very relevant to what this podcast is about and, and, and what, what I do every day is, you know, you work with a lot of startups, you know, kind of exploring the bleeding edge of tech and how you can storytell better. And in many ways, your job is to embed that startup mindset within this huge media company, right? What is the value from your perspective of big companies working with startups of trying these new things and, and you know, rather than just doing it themselves in some way? So I'm a big fan of the innovator's dilemma, right? And I'm a big fan of small companies being introduced into larger companies to give them wind under their wings and to help them pursue their goal sets and give them more human capital, actual capital, and resources, right? There are so many things about the mentality and the philosophy of a startup that are fundamentally different than a large profitable organization. You can only do your best to learn from what startups are doing before they start to cannibalize parts of your business. And if you don't take a really active stance building relationships with startups, hiring them to do work for you, building that sort of cohesion, right? Those tentacles of connection, you are going to be on the wrong side of history. Like, And it's proven over and over and over again. If you don't figure out how to do something better than you're doing now for your business, someone else is going to figure it out and they're going to start eating your lunch and then your breakfast and your dinner and then you're back. And it's not like it's a one-off, like weird outlier happens every once in a while. It happens so often that you cannot ignore it. And again, going back to those very large companies that I sort of pointed out in a big long laundry list of what are they doing to stay ahead and what are they doing and what do they all have in common? The other thing they have in common is they are always on acquisition 
sprints. They're looking for companies that have that can add a piece of the puzzle to their arsenal and try and pick them up for something less than their actual value. Because you know, if you're going to get acquired by an Apple or Google or an Amazon or a Microsoft, there's so much value as a young startup. You know that the risk of being a startup and trying to bring a product to market on your own is extraordinarily hard. It, it most lose, right? No matter how good your idea is, most times you're going to get up the food chain to a point that you get a very large, extraordinarily well-capitalized, well-resourced organization to take interest in you and either aqua hire, invest in you, or bring you into their world in some fashion. The smartest, most powerful companies are doing it by heaps and droves right now. Like If you just look at the companies Apple's acquired in the last five years, Amazon's acquired in the last five years, Microsoft acquired five years. It's not a small amount of companies. It's significant. And they all add something to the equation, whether it's that exposed. Sometimes not very exposed. Sometimes they'll just pick up stuff and you're like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that company. What are they doing? And then it's going to get embedded in some product or service that they offer that just adds to their, their benefit, their equation to the world, their walled garden, right? They're all trying to grow their walled garden in the best way possible. And bringing startup culture to that on a very regular basis is really critical to their success. Why do you think that the large companies can't do it themselves, right? I mean, you're talking Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, they have the best talent. They have huge R&D budgets. Why shouldn't they just, you know, create a skunk works lab, close the door and come out in five years with all the answers? So they do it and they sometimes succeed at it, but for the most part, they don't succeed at it. And the reasons why they don't succeed at it is if you are in a comfort zone, it's hard to be uncomfortable. It's hard to find the business that says, I'm going to be really uncomfortable for a long period of time until I find my way through these woods that are really dark and thorny to get to the other side of the equation. When you don't have to go to the darkest part of those woods, you don't go to the darkest part of those woods. The psychology doesn't let you go to the darkest part of those woods. So because you're successful at the woods you came through when you were a startup, you don't want to go back into those woods again. Like it's not a good idea, right? So you can't actually do it. That's why it doesn't work. What does work is you can set up an organization within a large organization that has autonomy that actually does truly act like a startup and has no responsibility, no ROI, no like I have to prove my value or my worth in any way, shape or form. I'm just the group that lives in the woods. And at some point I might emerge out of the woods and you'll be like, that was fantastic. I'm so glad we left them in the woods, right? But the minute you try and take them out of the woods, they get comfortable, they get compliant, complacent, and they can't win the game. The game is so hard to win, which is why small startups often have the best ideas and will get acquired by large companies when they can start building them into businesses or including them into their offerings. I'm totally stealing what I'm about to say from like six different people have said some version of this. But you know, the, the large company has all the resources to build a parachute. They have the maps, they have the history, they've done consumer research on what the parachute should look like. Yep. And they're on the ground and, and they've got the money to do it. And the entrepreneur just jumped out of an airplane and has to build it before he hits the ground. That's it. That's the difference is you just are going to work faster. It means more to you. And it's everything. And my wife always makes fun of when I first started Venture Fuel. You know, I'd wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and she'd be like, are you going to work? And it was like, yeah. Like I, I'm just thinking about it. Like I, I think I've got something really interesting that I'm passionate about. 
and it didn't feel like work. And that's very hard to recreate, I think, unless your back's against the wall or you have that burning passion for something. Unless your back's against the wall. That's exactly right. And when your back's against the wall long enough, you figure out how to get your back off that wall. Yeah. And you know, when the wall is super comfy and cushy, it's like, yeah, I'm good. It's fine. I'm happy here. I also love, even though it's one of those extraordinarily overused uh, metaphors, is in the days of the NASA heyday and the space race, when NASA and all these like groups invested huge amount of dollars in figuring out the pen that would write in uh, zero gravity. Yeah. And the Russians just used a pencil, right? <laughs> it was like, what's the better approach here, right? It's like the scrappy Russian cosmonaut folks were like, why would we invest $2 million to try and build an anti-gravity pen? Use a pencil, right? Yeah. It's like, there you go. So that's startup mentality. Use a pencil. You'll figure it out. You know, okay. I love it. So last year, you received the Innovation Award at the prestigious Variety Hall of Fame event. And as I was doing research, you said in your acceptance speech, I'm going to quote you and tell me if they got it right. I can tell you with 100% certainty that I'm never the smartest person in the room, but I'm almost always the most curious person in the room. And that just struck me. Uh, We've had a number of people on the podcast. And if there's one common thread, it's curiosity to the people that are innovating and doing new things. How do you maintain that curiosity and not get as comfortable as we were just talking about? Like, can it be taught? Is it just something that's innate to you? I think it can, I think the muscle can be built. I use that, that, that term a lot, building the muscles. And so you're right. That is something I said in this amazing Good. award ceremony that I had to go to and give a speech and had this like wheel of my life's accomplishments. It was all kind of extraordinarily heady. Like I couldn't even believe it was happening to me. It's like, I'm just this regular kid from Florida who grew up and had an interesting opportunity to work in some interesting technology fields. And some of them worked out and then they're like, we're giving you this award and you're going to be inducted into the hall of fame. And I was like, holy cow. Okay. That's awesome. First, when they first reached out, I actually thought it was a scam. I was like, and I reached out to some of my friends in the studio. I'm like, is this like a real thing? Or like, are they just trying to like get money for something? And they're like, (laughs) no, no, Ted, this is a real thing. Like, this is the real deal. You have to say yes to this. I'm like, okay. So it was very humbling and and an amazingly fun night. My family all got to come in and friends and stuff. Cool. Had a fancy chicken dinner and it was great. <laughs> but yes, the what I said about curiosity and is completely candid and honest. I never ever feel like I'm the most intelligent person in a conversation, but I very often feel like I'm the one willing to try it. I'm the willing participant to go out on the ledge, to just like ask the what if questions. Like, why does it always have to be this way? It can be quite annoying to people, right? It's like always asking why can be sort of aggravating to people that don't have that mindset. So you have to be diplomatic and aware of it. But it's like, well, just because we've always done this, why do we have to keep doing it this way? And that sets a a mindset for terms like innovation and creativity and exploration that you can't really successfully do without it. You have to be willing to be the, the person that is, uh, I sort of joke about it. I said, you have to be the willing participant to kiss the frogs, to yeah. be the professional frog kisser, right? Because you got to kiss a lot of frogs to find your prince or your princess. That, that and, may be the subject of this. That's going to be the title of the podcast episode. You just got to be a professional frog kisser. Like, you because it. a lot of things don't work out, but you meet a lot of interesting people along the way and you might find recommendations for them or help them with some advice or some mentorship pushing them down the road. But it's really few and far between 
that you find the frog that's going to turn into the prince, right? And when they do, it's remarkable. And they can fall from grace really quick. Like they may have it all like right, right, right. And then for whatever set of circumstances, it can all fall apart really quickly. Like there's all this discussion about TikTok these days, right? Between the the government nonsense and all the things that the the guy from Disney just either got ousted or decided to quit on his own and nobody knows. It's like a whole thing, right? But I've been asked a lot about it. And my take on TikTok is that why do people not realize how volatile this is? Like, do they have they completely forgotten about Vine? Yeah. And have they completely unaware that Facebook is going to do their version of this and are investing dollars and time into it? And that every other company is going to figure out how to have their version of this because of the success of Vine that had a moment and now the success of TikTok that's having a bigger moment. Yeah. But I do not have any strong confidence that TikTok has a long-term survivability plan. I think they are absolutely in the moment, completely relevant, completely connected to youth culture. But there will be a next youth culture yeah. that will be slightly different chemistry than what people want out of TikTok. And there'll be some other thing that gets developed on the platform du jour. And TikTok will be long in the memory of like, yeah, I remember TikTok. And oh, yeah, I also remember MySpace. And I remember Vine. And I remember Meerkat. And I remember et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's yeah. lots of these things that have. And it just feels like they're an, an unstoppable force right now. But the difference between TikTok and Facebook and Apple are huge chasms of potential risk and success. Yeah, it's really interesting. So let's talk about what is next. And maybe we'll focus in on content, yeah. their wheelhouse, right? So how will creation of content evolve, say, you know, 10 years out? And if you'd like to touch on you know, the Intel Studios, Hype VR, and volumetric video capture. Yeah, so it's a very big, broad question. Right? We could talk yeah. for hours about the evolution of content. So let's break it up into two parts. There's the technology that will drive how we visualize and create the content, right? And then there will be the content creation and the content viewership choices and participation part of it. So first, let's talk about the devices, right? And if you look at the smart money and the big money and a lot of money, doesn't mean we're going to be right in this turn of the wheel. But there are billions upon billions of dollars being poured into the next compute platform, the next visual system that is going to break us from the rectangle, break us from what we do 90% of our day now, which is look at some sort of screen-style technology that has been the same kind of screen that we've looked at since our great-grandparents looked at a little black-and-white screen that was you know nine inches across, right? We're fundamentally doing the same thing. But we are at the first time starting to figure out how to commercialize, make it practical, make it comfortable, make it useful, looking at what we call spatial visualization tools, which are broadly referred to as virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, or the industry term that a lot of us that have to do it all the time, which I'm quite pleased to do this all the time because it's just like being a kid in a candy store for me. (laughs) Uh, We refer to it as XR or extended reality, right? So we're looking at screens that you will wear, that will track with you and move where your eyes move and create the illusion of what we do now on traditional screens exponentially better and eventually exponentially more realistic. And new storytelling will evolve from this. New use cases from 
heavy and light industry and healthcare and social and you name it, right? Yeah. There are going to be use cases across the board for this. We are still in the primordial ooze days of this technology. It's not a mature technology. It is a early toddler version of what people are waiting for is the impotent teenager version, right? Which is coming soon, probably in the next five to seven years. You're going to have a device that you're going to prefer to use rather than a traditional computer screen or a television screen for certain things. It fits in a very small fissure right now. Now, that small fissure is still hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, right? Right. In in revenue. But it is not a multi-trillion dollar industry like the compute industry and the traditional screen industry at large right now. But you're going to see exponential growth once a few more things get figured out by companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that is coming. And they're getting more and more right every 12 to 18 months. So if we put a marker here at 2020, and we put another marker at 2025 and another marker at 2030, it's going to be interesting to see what you do that has evolved from your smartphone and compute, you know, desktop or laptop or tablet compute world into something else that is likely going to be something you're going to wear where your visual system happens to be, where your eyes are. And I like to give the example, probably tell them I'm a big Apple guy. I'm very yeah. Apple focused in my life. I do a lot of work with Apple and connected to Apple in lots of ways. But I like to give this point of reference in terms of the economic power of the long-term figure it out, figure it out, figure it out till you get it right. If you look at the Apple AirPods business, their little wireless headphone business, it is a stunning long-range success story. Apple has been working on some sort of wireless headphone device for 20 plus something years with limited success. But they kept at it and kept at it and kept at it until they figured out the AirPod metaphor and what it needed to do and how it needed to feel and how it needed to work. And subsequently, they have created one of the most successful consumer products businesses of all time. So if you look at what it means, if you took the AirPod business and separated it from Apple proper and just made it its own standalone business, it would be like the 31st or 32nd largest company on planet Earth. Just selling the little earbuds, right? right? It has close to like $180 billion valuation based on past sales and sales projections into the next year, which is shocking because there's nothing all that amazing and innovative about them, except that they work really good and people like them and they're connected to that Apple ecosystem. Yeah. So when you line it up against companies, right? That valuation of just the, the buds, the earbuds... Bigger than GE, bigger than GM, bigger than Ford and, and, and Chrysler combined, right? Half the valuation of Intel, right? Just Apple's AirPods, right? right? So that's just the ears, right? Figuring out this is where the sound is and let's give you something that makes sense for where the sound is, right? Now, apply into the future speak and start thinking about how much exponentially larger our visual system is than our auditory system in terms of just what we can do with it, the opportunities that present itself, and the massive economic upside of that. When Apple figures out how to get this right, which they probably will at some point, it'll probably take four or five gens of products to get it right enough. That's going in that 2020 to 2030 year curve. By the time they figure it out and you have something that you prefer and love so much that you're going to use it all the time, like how many people around the world wear those AirPods, it will likely be 
as big a business as most of Apple. It potentially will be a trillion dollar valuation business of itself evolving the visual compute system. That's how big the opportunity is. It's super interesting. So one of the things I think about when I get approached by any new tech in any of the realities, right? XR, AR, VR, I'm always like, I feel like there's this moment of total hype. Everyone got super excited. And like, there's been a couple moments, right? Throughout decades of this, but recently, and then it got brands excited. It got consumers excited. And then, you know, they're just, the pieces aren't there, as you said, yet it's evolving. How do you kind of balance that, right? When you're talking internally to studio execs that are like, Ted, I got to be honest with you. I don't know if we want to spend that kind of money when we know only the early adopters are paying attention to it and it's too flawed. So the strategy for me is if you get in early, your cost to learn and your cost to figure it out is exponentially lower than if you get in late. If you get in late, you're always chasing. If you get in early, you may take some arrows in the back as a pioneer, but as long as you can survive it, and as long as you have the wherewithal with other business units to survive it, you should be out there exploring. And don't be trying to pin a business model onto it. Don't be trying to create a business when it's not mature enough yet. You're just going to frustrate yourself and stymie yourself. You just need to take the long tail approach and know that if you believe in change and you believe that our devices are in a constant state of evolution and change, you have to be willing to take the risks to figure out what are people going to do on these devices when they get right enough that they go to scale and they become a consumer electronics product, not a lab product, right? And you know, for all the critiques of Facebook across the board, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are doing quite a good job of having that foresight and sticking to their guns and knowing that this is going to take a long time. We're going to spend a lot of money. They point out their success cases. They're doing really well within this little micro sort of version of a business that we call virtual reality today. It's making profit for a lot of companies that are building software and building product and building entertainment for it. It is a business and people are doing well, but of course it's entertainment business. So it's a hit driven business, meaning only a small percentage of people succeed creatively and economically and almost everyone else fails. But that's not related specifically to VR. That's just entertainment in general. any format you want to tie it to. So they're doing extraordinarily well and will stay the course and see if they get to the other side of the rainbow, but they will have stiff competition because they're not alone. And there are a lot of companies that are even much, much larger than Facebook, believe it or not, that are putting huge amounts of energy and resources in the staging events that will create the right marketplace for this. But it is going to be, it's going to be a tangle. It's going to be a fight because the stakes are so high and it's going to take longer than anybody thinks to get it right. So the first or second thing you have that you think got it right will likely end up on the bookshelf faster than you think. The fourth or fifth thing, when you think they've got it right, will be useful for a while and then it's going to end up on the bookshelf. And the sixth or seventh thing will be so right that you'll kind of remember what you did before, but the old stuff is now on the bookshelf. And this is the new hotness. And this is what you're going to be doing. That's the 2030 sort of looks. That's where it's headed. I love it. Well, that is a, a great place to kind of conclude. So where can people find out more about you, follow the work you're doing? Is there any place you'd guide folks to go? There are so many like places. The odd thing is to Google my name. And there's lots of presentations and speeches where I talk about all this stuff online over the 
past X amount of years that I've been doing it. For anybody that's particularly interested and wants to reach out, you can share my email or my Twitter, which is virtual TEDS. I can send them links to stuff. I've got bios and articles and tons of like YouTube links and me giving talks all over the world about this stuff. So I'm happy to share it. There's, awesome. there's lots of stuff out there. Well, I love it. Well, thank you for making the time to chat with us. Pleasure, Fred. It's always fun to talk to you. Yeah, it was great. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe, leave a review, and follow us at Venture Fuel on LinkedIn. On our next episode, I'm chatting with Travis Montague, CEO of Holla, which is helping us enrich conversations everywhere via gifts and stickers within messaging. He was named Most Daring Entrepreneur, Forbes 30 Under 30, Fast Company's Most Innovative, and most prestigiously, we both spoke at a conference in the middle of the woods of Wisconsin.